you have not already, I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. This morning we'll begin to look at verses 14 through 18. As mentioned before, if you don't have a Bible, there's likely a blue Bible located underneath the seat around you. And in that Bible, you can turn to page 980. This will be part one. Um, My original intent was to put it all together, but there's a little bit too much here to get our head around, I think, in one Sunday. A little too much to to deal with. And so I'm going to break it into two parts. So Paul's general command, again, some review leading up to uh, the section we're in now. Paul's general command in chapter 2, verse 12, to the church at Philippi, as it's recorded in the NET translation, continue working out your salvation with awe and reverence, which we covered last Sunday. And if you weren't here last Sunday and you haven't listened, can I please strongly urge you to go online and and listen to that sermon. There were a number number of you that expressed uh, that it was helpful to you. Uh, It's not that I intend any sermon not to be helpful. That is my goal with all of them, but... When I have that kind of response, then I think it, I want to encourage those of you who missed it to certainly listen to that. But we covered that uh, section and that command last Sunday. And then in verse 14, that command to continue working out your salvation with awe and reverence is followed up by this specific command, do all things without grumbling or disputing. That's the imperative. That's the authoritative command that's in, that follows that one. And I want to remind you again that these commands, along with um, several others, all fall under the first command. I, I mentioned this last week, but I want to keep bringing it back up. They all fall under the first command that's found in this section or unit, if you will, of the letter, which is a unit that begins in 127, chapter 1, verse 27, and ends in chapter 2, verse 18. And the first and overarching command found in chapter 1, verse 27, is that the Philippians live or conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And I want to say again, that command doesn't mean that we are to live a life that makes us worthy or deserving of the gospel of Christ, for that isn't even possible. It's not possible. We will never be worthy of the gospel or deserving of it. Rather, it means that the gospel of Christ and let me, let me pause for a second because I keep saying that, gospel of Christ, it's here in the passage. Paul makes, uses that phrase over and over again, gospel of Christ. What is that? The gospel of Christ. It's the good news concerning Christ. It is the message of Christ. It is the good news of his salvation, his redemption, his coming kingdom. And that good news or that story concerning Christ is revealed to us in the pages from Genesis to Revelation of the Holy Scriptures. 
So what does it mean that we are to live a life that makes us that or worthy, that is in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ? It means that the gospel of Christ, this is what it means, beloved. This is what it means. It means that the story concerning Christ, the person of Christ, the work of Christ, the redemption of Christ, Christ is worthy of or deserving of a particular kind of life. That's what it means. He is, he is, and all that he is and has done and will do, he is, which is the gospel, he is worthy. Deserving of a particular kind of life. What kind of life is that? What kind of life is that? Well, as a result of continually believing the gospel, it is a life that willingly, joyfully, zealously strives to steadily die to self. It is that kind of life that the gospel is deserving of. It strives to steadily die to self and increasingly, increasingly live for Christ. That is what the gospel is worthy of. Living for his honor, living for his glory, living for his purposes, living for his fame. His fame. It is a life, beloved, that is slowly, certainly, sometimes it feels so slow, but slowly and steadily aligning what is important to it with what is important to Christ. It is a life, beloved, that commits itself over and over again, because once is not enough. Daily commitment, hourly commitment. My goodness, sometimes minute-by-minute commitment. Committing itself to being conformed to the image of Christ. That is the life that is worthy of the gospel. That is what the gospel is worthy of. Deserving of. Conformed to the image of Christ. It is a life in pursuit of Christ-likeness. Hear me? The gospel you believe that you're trusting in, it's worthy of that type of life from you and me. It is a life, beloved, of continual repentance. (laughs) Continual repentance. Again, daily, hourly, sometimes, minute by minute, turning from our sin and turning to Christ and his righteousness. Turning from our unbelief and turning to belief in him and his word. Turning from our rebellion and turning to obedience unto him. The gospel deserving of that. It is a life, beloved, of growing more and more in love with Christ and in love with what Christ loves. Christ loves his church. Christ loves his church, gave his life for it. Consider that. 
So, let's take a closer look. By the way, I just had this thought. Um, you probably know this already if you've been coming for a while, but you may wonder, why is he always so, like in our business, you know, like pushing back against us and our sin and, I mean, why is it always so hard like that? Okay, that's intentional. Uh, it's not a mistake. Uh, my position is, is that the world affirms us all week long in our sin. It affirms sin, it rejoices in sin, it celebrates sin, and it affirms us. It doesn't challenge us, it affirms us in our sin. That's the world we live in. So, at least once a week, at least once a week, I'm looking to take the opportunity to shatter that affirmation. In your heart and in mine. Because I think we need it more than anything else. So, that is why I do uh, what I do and preach how I preach. So let's take a closer look at this command to the church at Philippi to do everything without grumbling and disputing. Paul says... Let's look at it in its context. Philippians 2, verses 14 through 18. To the church in Philippi, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Now, beloved, before we start, and it's just going to be a start, we won't finish, but before we start to dive into some of the details of this passage, I wanted to share this quote with you that I found helpful as I was trying to work through and determine what do I bring to the table? Uh, because my, Thomas and I are, were talking about this because we both uh, regularly prepare sermons and, and one, of the, the, one of the skills you need and you have to continue to develop is, um, is yeah, it's, not, it's, it's more like what do I leave off? What do I not include? Because we could go hours and hours and hours talking through the details of just this passage, right? So, um, and especially this one, because of some of the detail that is here. But the quote goes like this. Because of the extremely complex nature of this paragraph, and it is, including its grammar, the unusually high incidence of intertextuality, what is that? That is its relationship with other text in the Bible. Okay, and there's a lot here. It's either, either it's echoing other texts in the Bible or even it's specifically using the same language found in other texts in the Bible, which brings in more consideration and, and thought and, and what we address. And the role of the metaphors in verse 17, which when we get there, you'll see are a little complicated. Because of all that, one can easily lose sight of the forest for the trees. What does that mean? It means get so caught up in the details that we lose sight of the big picture. And then he says this, one must not lose sight of the fact that everything else that is said here is brought to bear on the opening imperative or authoritative command. 
which is in verse 14. Do all things without grumbling and disputing. Everything is drive, is connected back to that. That's the main thing we need to keep our eyes fixed on while we consider all the other details. And he says this, because so many of us are prone to such behavior, grumbling and disputing, it is easy to dismiss this as a very mundane matter. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it almost, it reminds me exactly of the study we've been going through in the men's and women's group, respectable sins. It's a, these are sins that are so common that we've come to a place where we accept them. Instead of root them out of our lives. We don't see them the way God sees them. He says, but the very fact that Paul spends so much energy giving biblical and theological support to it, that is the command, suggests otherwise, that it's not a mundane matter. It's not a mundane matter. Grumbling or disputing within the congregation. With me? So we'll keep the main thing the main thing. So do all things, everything, without grumbling or disputing. So I understand these to be specific sins that were troubling the church at Philippi. Specific sins that were troubling the church at Philippi. As part of our growth group study, I recently read an article that said, and I'll quote, a healthy church isn't one without problems. Rather, it's one where problems are addressed with grace and truth. I completely agree. A healthy church, I'll say it again, isn't one without problems. Rather, it's one where problems are addressed with grace and truth. I think you could make application of that to see other, other places where relationships exist. A healthy family isn't one without problems. A healthy marriage isn't one without problems. Rather, it's one where problems are addressed. They need to be addressed. Otherwise, it'll become unhealthy. And they need to be addressed in the way God would have you to address them, with grace, love, and truth. Not your own truth, not some truth you pulled out of some psychological babble, but the truth of God that's found in his word, that truth. The church at Philippi was a good church, beloved. It was a good church. I've said that before. They were a good church. But like any church, guess what? They had some problems. And the problems mentioned are not insignificant. Oh, yeah, grumbling. Okay, who doesn't do that? Well, that's the problem. <laughs> that's the problem. That attitude's the problem. And that act is a problem within the church and for the church and for Christ. If not addressed, this grumbling and disputing, their ability to honor Christ would be weakened and their witness in Philippi would be muddied. To be obedient to chapter 1, verse 27, the overarching command of this section, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, they must and we must, in all of our doing, purge ourselves of grumbling and disputing. To be obedient to that command. You with me? 
Some of you I lost. Please come back. Grumbling. Grumbling. An English definition of, uh, or a definition of the English word grumbling, which is how the Greek word is translated here, is a mutter of discontent, a mutter of discontent or complaint, complaint. And if we looked at the word complain or to, or complaint or to complain, we would find the definition to express dissatisfaction or annoyance about something. The word translated grumbling is used several places in the New Testament. I just want to show you two. So we get the, uh, from those passages, I think we can get the idea. It's not that we don't probably understand the word grumbling, but I just want to show you how it's used in the New Testament and, and make sure we don't, we don't miss the, the attitude and the heart of grumbling. In Matthew chapter 20, Jesus gives a parable, and I'm not going to attempt to explain the parable. I just want to read it because the word grumbling is used, and you'll, you'll understand the idea of grumbling here very clearly. Let me read it for you. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And, he, and to them he said, you, go into the vineyard too. And whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you, go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, so much later in the day, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled. That's the same word. It's the same exact word. At the master of the house. So now we see what grumbling looks like. And we see why it's coming up in their hearts, right? We'll see it all here. Saying, these last worked only one hour. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. <laughs> I don't know if that's how they said it, but I think it's close. But he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong which is true, right? They feel like a wrong's been done to them, so they are dissatisfied. They are annoyed, but no wrong has been done to them, no. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Is, did they not? 
take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Oof. And just thinking through the story, and, and again, thinking about this grumbling, if it were not for this master's kindness in bringing the laborers to his field, and agreeing to pay them a decent wage, a good wage for their work, they'd have nothing. He was generous, he was kind, he sought them out, he invited them in, he gave, and yet, that just wasn't enough for these laborers who think that someone else is getting a better deal. Yeah? So they grumbled. Here's another one. This one's easier, simpler. In 1 Peter 4, 9, the church is instructed to show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Why say that? Why say without grumbling? Why not just say show hospitality? Well, it is because that is where our sin-tainted hearts so often go when we are called upon to make sacrifices or to do the uncomfortable or live for the sake of someone other than ourselves. We grumble. We grumble. Show hospitality to one another. If the person would remember, well, everything I have is a gift from God. It's only because of his good grace that I have anything to share with someone else. And God himself shared his very son with me. He offered up everything for me. And now he calls upon me for the good of his church and for the good of our community to show hospitality. Do I really have any reason to grumble? And yet... And yet, we do. Otherwise, there wouldn't have been the command. That is is where our hearts go. It is a real problem. And it's not okay for our hearts to go there. It's not okay. Otherwise, there wouldn't be the command. Hey, you know, show hospitality. If you grumble a little bit, it's cool. Everyone does. It's all right. It's not all right. It's not okay. One writer in describing the word says, the word as used, grumbling in the New Testament, usually has an ethically bad sense. Selfish complaining. Unbalanced criticism of small matters. Impatience towards what is not understood. We just start grumbling. I don't like this. I don't think I like this. Grudging unwillingness to be Helpful, all of it expressed outwardly. <laughs> one, one commentator said that most Christians are able to do some things without complaint, but it is when we are exhorted to do all things <laughs> that the difficulty comes. <laughs> Isn't that true? So what were they or some of them grumbling about, okay? 
What were, what, what were some in the church? I don't assume for a second it was the entire church, but certainly there, there was grumbling among them in, in their doing. What were they grumbling about? I can't say for sure. I can't say for sure because Paul doesn't specify. Do you notice that? He doesn't specify. So I'm not, I don't know. I can't say dogmatically. But I know this. The church on earth is not made up of sinless, perfected people. <laughs> right? Any uh, sinless, perfected people in here? No, nope, not yet. Not yet. It's our hope. It's a promise. We're moving toward it by God's grace, but not yet. And I know this, that the gospel of Christ calls the church to all sorts of and all kinds of sacrifice. It calls us to things that don't come natural to those who, before coming to Christ, the true king, have lived as if they were the king. Old habits die hard, don't they? And the gospel calls us to regularly die to ourselves. And in all of these things, our old, sinful, self-serving, self-loving, unyielding, proud nature sure doesn't take kindly to those things. So grumbling bubbles up in our hearts and spews out of our mouths. Beloved, we we are prone to grumble, to quickly even express our dissatisfaction or annoyance, to push back against anything that presses down on our sinfully proud, self-centered, I am king, the world revolves around me, hearts. In answer to what they were grumbling about, one commentator speculates that the grumbling may include, certainly, this is reasonable to conclude, complaints about other members of the congregation. It's written to a church. It's leaders. That's not shocking, in my experience or even outsiders at whose hands they are suffering. It may even include that. Certainly, that may be in part why Paul included in 129, which is part of this section, the statement, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. God has gifted this to you for his own good purposes. And they were suffering. They were being persecuted by outsiders because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But God has given that to you. It's his doing. Don't grumble. Don't grumble against one another. But as I said, beloved, Paul doesn't say stop grumbling about such and such. He doesn't say that. But rather his command is to do everything. <laughs> without grumbling. Wow, that just, you know? 
If he was specific, well, then maybe I could say, all right, okay, for those things I don't grumble, but he opened the door wide. In all you're doing, don't grumble. And everything, uh, in the context, you, you could make application of, the, of this to anything you do. I was telling my brother, um, you could certainly make application of this principle to your laundry doing. Or your job. Or the traffic that you drive in to get to your job. You could, but it's, it's more first and foremost, it's, it's the church and, and the church and its doings. Uh, I, I might even say it this way. It's, it's all that your all, almighty Lord, you church, all that your almighty Lord, your, your, your Savior, your altogether righteous and, and, and wise rescuer, it's all that he, you know that one? The one you owe everything to? The one whom you'd be nothing without? It's, it's, it's all that he has asked you to do. And everything that he has asked you to do, do not grumble. Do it without grumbling. In all of our doings as a church, in our interactions, and in our relationships, and our responsibilities, and our sacrifices, you're to do it without grumbling. So that's the command, yeah? That's the command. Back to verse 14. That's not the entire command. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Another translation uh, just changes the word disputing and changes all things to everything. And I like it. It's do everything without grumbling or arguing. Church, do everything without grumbling or arguing. The idea of arguing here is, um, I think it's like bickering and, or, or being argumentative. Okay? Um, it, it, it's not, it's not, he's not saying you can't discuss things. You can't bring different... Uh, points of view into play, it's, it's, a, it's an arguing, it's a disputing. That's different. Uh, the Greek word translated disputing or arguing, it's probably meant to, as one commentator stated it here, draw attention to the Philippians' divisive actions, which we, we see hints of in the letter, presumably, presumably within the congregation, perhaps even with their leaders. Perhaps. It's to address that. Stop arguing. Within the congregation, we see for sure there's something going on between two ladies in the church in, in Philippians 4.2, and he says, I entreat Udia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord, to stop, to be in harmony, to stop the bickering, to stop the disagreement and the fighting if you will. Uh, and concerning leaders that the church might be arguing or argumentative with the leaders of the church, which in case um, we're not clear about that, the, the leadership of the church by design by God are the elders of the church. They are tasked with a heavy responsibility of caring for, loving, guiding, leading, and speaking under the authority of God's word, authoritatively to the church. And they have to make decisions. And they're imperfect, for sure. 
uh, but they still are given that responsibility by God to make those decisions, and they'll answer to God for all of that. And if, if a decision they made or an exhortation they gave was sinful, a meaning contrary to what the word of God says, then certainly the congregation should address that, uh, deal with that, speak to that. But sometimes leadership of a church makes decisions uh, that are not sinful. They just are not liked. And so you see continual uh, references t- to this issue, such as Hebrews thirteen seventeen, obey your leaders and submit to them. Stop arguing with them. Stop being argumentative. Stop disputing what they ask you to do, or the direction that they're taking the church. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. It's a heavy responsibility. And arguing with them only makes the responsibility heavier. That's why he says, let them do this, what they do, with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. You want to kill off your leadership? Just continue arguing with them. Pushing back instead of getting on the same page and getting behind them and supporting them in their heavy responsibility. Yeah. First Thessalonians 5, 12 through 13, again, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. That would be the elders of the church, first and foremost, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Stop, don't be fighting. Don't be arguing, don't be bickering. Why might members in the church be arguing or disputing with one another and or the leadership of the church? Why might they be doing that instead of loving one another, really loving one another, esteeming one another and striving to work for peace and harmony for the sake of Christ and his church that he loves That he gave his life up for? Why? Well, it's simple. It's really one word. Sin. That's why. That's why. It's sin. And it's sin that needs to be, by the grace of God, and in response to the gospel, stamped out of our lives. Stamped out of our lives. It's not okay. It's not okay. You know, you think about, remember, the context of this unit, this section, right? In the context, what Paul started off with when he said, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, he then stepped right into, what was the subject? Do you remember? He steps right into what? Huh? Couldn't hear you, I can't make it out. Going deaf as I get older. Unity. Did you say unity? If you didn't, just shake your head yes. Okay, all right. Uh, He steps right into... Okay, remember, you're reading that letter every week, so 
you should be, I want you, at some point, you should just be able to boom. You'll just you'll be able to answer those things. That's why it's so important. Unity. He speaks to the issue of unity because there are seeds of disunity present, right? And it's not just unity, but it's unity through humility. And of course, beloved, let me just say that it is the proud heart that easily and gladly finds itself grumbling and disputing and arguing and bickering. It is the proud heart. But unity through humility. Well, you want to know how to destroy unity? I'm going to give you a class. It's how to destroy unity 101. It's like this. Grumble or argue constantly. There's no unity if people are grumbling and arguing. We're really not on the same page. You want to suck the life out of the church 101? Great class, yeah? How to suck the life out of a church 101. Do all things or even, hey, do just a number of things with grumbling or disputing. You'll suck the life right out of the church and anyone around you. You want, here, here's my illustration. When you think about, when you picture this, I, I, am to, I am to do all things, I am to do everything without, this part is to be left out of my doing. In my relationships with one another in the church, in my service in the church, in my following after Christ, in my advancing him, in my suffering for him, in my denying of myself and dying to self, I am to do all those things without grumbling or disputing, all right? Now, how many of you have teenage children or have had them? It doesn't even, maybe preteen. It could be a little bit earlier. Maybe even like 10 or 11. I don't know, it depends on the family. But, um, oh, they're so wonderful when they're little. And they're wonderful all the way through. I don't want to take anything away. Children are a blessing from the Lord but they're also an incredible challenge in so many good ways, in so many good ways. And so uh, for us, if we'll respond to them rightly, so, you know, you have the child and that child, you, at, they're at a point where they, they now, they push back. You ask them to do this or that or, or there's something about the household or the way things are done and they begin to grumble. They begin to grumble and, and the, or you give them an uh, uh, instruction and they want to dispute. They want to argue about the instruction. They become argumentative, grumbling, argumentative little monsters in your house. (laughs) And I was thinking of teen because I think that's where I remember it most. You know, when they're small, you, you can crush it. (laughs) So you don't have to deal with it, you know? Ah, just put that out right there. That's done. Uh, but then they get older, and I don't know. Something happens weird, and they start thinking they can, they can tr- try this. And, and man, but what does, let me tell you, what does it do to the home? What does it do to you, mom, dad, there with the children, if you've experienced a grumbling, uh, disputing, argumentative child where it just starts to become who they are? Everything, they're complaining Everything. And the, here's the thing. You're like, how, how dare you? You know, you can see that response. How dare you? You'd have nothing if it were not for me. <laughs> I make you this dinner, you grumble because it's not this or that. 
I ask you to go clean up your room and everything I've, you have in your room is, is because of my good grace to you and you want to dispute it with me? How does it make you feel? Huh? Exhausted. Like, where's the energy in that home? It's gone. It's so disruptive. It's so destructive to relationship even. You start to even like not want to be around your kids. You know, the ones you love, you have all these pictures, you're like, I don't even want to be around you. I can't talk to you. You are a grumbling, disgruntled. And so, yeah, we, that's not the right way to respond to that. I'm, ta- I'm just talking real life, that's all. I'm not saying do that, like, I don't want to be around you. I'm not saying do that. <laughs> I'm just trying to be real with you. That, is, that was what went through my heart a number of times. Well, the church is going to have a really difficult time doing all that it's called to do unless it's united, unless all of us, or at least a good portion of us, at least, are, are purging ourselves of these kind of things that are so destructive to our cohesiveness and, and to our togetherness and, and to our moving forward as one unit. And I don't know about you, but I have limited amounts of energy yeah, I don't, I don't know, I haven't found an unlimited source of energy yet. And so I am energized by, by my brothers and sisters as they together with me fight the good fight and encourage each other and, and speak truth to each other and love. That actually is energizing, but the opposite is also true when they're grumbling or disputing or arguing with each other or with the leadership, the energy zapped. We're only human. By the way, I'm not saying any of this, I should say this, because I think someone has a grumbling and disputing problem. I mean, I'm not thinking of that right now. Certainly, grumbling happens and argument or being argumentative does happen in our body because it happens in everybody. Uh, but wherever it happens, whenever it happens, you need to know it's not okay. I need to know it's not okay. And I need to stamp it out for the good of Christ, for the glory of Christ, for the good of his church, for the glory of the church, which is Christ. Now, 215. Do everything without grumbling or disputing. So that's the imperative. That's the command. Don't lose sight of that. Everything else that's said is tied back to this command. He's going to give you a so that. He's going to give you a so that. A reason why I've given you that command. And remember, it all falls under that heading. That we are to live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. The gospel of Christ is deserving of a particular kind of life. It's a life free of grumbling and disputing. He says this in 15, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Do that so that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Another translation of the Verse, which I prefer, just a, a, a little tweak. It says, so that you may be blameless and pure 
children of God, without blemish, though you live in a crooked and perverse society. You must do this so that you may be this. You got it? Which just, just for thought, guys. If you're not doing that, if you're not pursuing that, purging, grumbling, and being argumentative out of you, out of your heart, out of your life, then the latter part doesn't follow. Then you are not blameless before God, before men. You're not. You are not pure. You are not without blemish. You are not. That's heavy. That's serious. And it's real serious. I'm going to show you. It's real serious. <sighs> Blameless. Free from accusation or blame. All right? So these are the words that we see there. That's what that means. Free from accusation or blame. Innocent. I prefer pure as a translation. The word that's translated innocent or pure, depending on the translation, was used of undiluted wine or unalloyed metal. There's nothing else mixed in. So when it was used to refer to people, it carried the ideas, it could carry the idea of purity, uh, sincerity, or innocence. I prefer purity. Here's a child of God. What shouldn't be mixed in there, because it makes it impure for the child of God, is this grumbling. It makes them impure. He says that you may be blameless and pure, children of God without blemish. This is an additional description. That they may be children of God without blemish. And read it that way. That they may be, you do everything without grumbling or disputing, that they may be, that you may be children of, of God without blemish. It's not that they may be children of God. Okay, don't read it that way because that's not how it's meant to be read. He's not saying do this so that you may be children of God. Rather, it's so that you may be children of God without blemish. They already were children of God through saving faith in Jesus Christ. But they were to now be, because they were children of God, they were to be modeled after God according to his character without blemish. And in this case, it means purging themselves of this vile, nasty, defying, destructive, sinful thing, grumbling and argumentativeness and disputing and bickering. Now, let's pause. And then I'll just say a few things and then we'll wrap it up. I want to pause now because I want to send you away with this to think about it. I want to reflect on the intertextuality I mentioned earlier that, that, that is found in this paragraph. Here we go. Here's the intertextuality. In other words, it's referring, it has reference to other text, very close reference to other text, this section in the scripture. Specifically, it's in the Old Testament. As one uh, commentator points out, Paul's language in, in verse 14, do everything without grumbling or arguing, echoes that of Old Testament descriptions of the generation of Israelites who passed through the wilderness under Moses' leadership. By the way, Moses uh, was appointed by God. He had delegated authority from God to lead these people, yeah? They had, if you don't know, 
or if you don't recall, they had, this generation had repeatedly complained about their situation and wished that they had never left Egypt. They were in bondage to slavery in Egypt. God rescues them graciously, powerfully, pulls them out, gathers them together, and gives them a hope, a promise of a good land, taking them somewhere better, much better. And what does this generation of wilderness wanderers, as that's what ends up happening, wandering through the wilderness, because they won't obey, they won't listen, but instead they complain about this and that. And they push back hard against their leadership, which was Moses and, and Aaron. Disputing and arguing and even trying to replace them or kick them out. All the while, these guys are, they're just, they're just trying to be obedient to God and lead this rebellious, grumbling people. Read this, uh, maybe read this before you come back next time. Numbers 11, one through six. You can write this down for later. Numbers 14, one through four. Uh, Numbers 20, two through three. Numbers 21, four and five. You could just read that entire section, but you'll see over, you just see these incidences where, you know, God gives them manna from heaven. They complain. Oh, if we could just go back to Egypt. Are you, are you serious? Are you guys kidding? And just so, just so we're clear, a God did not take it lightly. Read the accounts. He killed people. He killed them. He killed them. You think grumbling's a small thing? It's not, beloved. And I think that's why this intertextuality exists. I think Paul's pulling it in. Paul certainly is steeped heavy, drenched in the Old Testament scriptures. And while he doesn't say, remember what it says about them? He's, he, is, he is certainly, it echoes, 14 echoes the exact things we heard about this wilderness generation. And in 15, he, he borrows directly from what is called the Song of Moses that's found in Deuteronomy 32.5. He borrows right from it. He takes right out of there. Let me read it to you. So we see phrases in Deuteronomy 32.5 placed into Philippians 2.15. In Deuteronomy 32.5 it says, they have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children. He's talking about this, this generation this wilderness generation, because they are blemished. This generation is not without blemish. This generation is blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Oh, the wordplay is interesting. They are a rebellious, disobedient, and unbelieving generation. Beloved, it's not, and by unbelieving, I don't, they believed in God. They didn't believe God. They didn't believe his word. They didn't trust him. They knew he was real. It wasn't that, but they were unwilling to submit themselves to the things he said and trust in those things. One writer says, the song 
of Moses begins, I didn't read it all to you, but it begins by declaring the faithfulness of God in verses three through four. And then it laments Israel's wickedness. They have dealt corruptly with him, God. They are no longer his children because of their blemish. They are a perverse and crooked generation. And the commentator says this, the application to the Philippians is by way of deliberate contrast. For these followers of Christ are to be blameless without blemish. They are to be blameless children who themselves are living in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. You're not to be the crooked and twisted generation. You are to be blameless as you live in the midst of the crooked and twisted generation. The example of Israel's complaining was used elsewhere by Paul, and, and we know it's directly. He actually draws attention to it directly. It's not indirectly through intertextuality. In 1 Corinthians 10.10, 10, but I'll pick it up in 10.9. You can read just 1 Corinthians 10. Start there when you have time at home, starting in verse 1, but I'll pick it up in 9. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did. He's talking about this generation. And we're destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did. And we're destroyed by the destroyer. And if you want to read that account, it's in number 16, 3 through 41. And then Paul says this. Now these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction. Ours on whom the end of the ages has come. We are to learn from their example. Here's a people that were a rebellious, stiff-necked people. They were undeserving of God's choice of them, of God's love extended to them. And yet he chose them from among all the other peoples of the earth and he set his love on them and he made a covenant with them and he's done these great and mighty things amongst them and for them and on their behalf and given them a hope and promise and yet well beloved they lived on that side of the cross we live on this side of the cross we know that in even even greater way we his church who didn't deserve it weren't worthy of it and yet God chose to set his love on us, his saving grace extended to us. He sent his son to die for us. He gave us a hope. He rescued us from a bondage not of Egypt but of sin. He's doing a mighty work among us and through us. And yet... Let all you do, do it without grumbling or disputing. Father in heaven, uh, do your work in us, among us, for your glory, for the good of the church, Father, for the glory of Christ, for the advancement of him. Purify your church, Lord. I ask it in Christ's name, amen.